Howdy. Hello there. Welcome to our very first podcast uh, sponsored by the LGBTQ Resource Center of Auraria. Uh, I am Ambria Lowhouse, pronouns they, them, theirs, and she, her, hers. And I'm Corbett Stevenson, pronouns they, them, theirs, or she, her, hers. We are two students here who also work at the office, and we have decided to start a podcast, uh, like hundreds of other people, because it's quarantine, and we can't socialize, and we want to talk about discourse. Uh, So today, we have a special guest with us. Uh, He used to work with us at our office as an educational trainer, was the founder to the Auraria Campus Pride Initiative, or ACPI, uh, and has spoken at conferences such as uh, the, oh God, Transforming Gender. You've spoken at the Higher Education Diversity Summit at MSU, which is actually what we'll be talking about today. But if you want to introduce yourself, Koiba. Hello world, my name is Kaiba Lincecum. I use he, him, his, or they, them, theirs pronouns. Um, I'm an alumni of MSU Denver. I graduated in 2019 with my degree in psychology, and in fall 2021, I will be a CU Denver graduate student studying school psychology, and I'm so wonderful to be here with you too. We miss you dearly. I miss everyone too. <laughs> Um, so today, we're actually going to start with a topic that Kaiba and I presented at the Higher Education Diversity Summit um, this past fall for Metropolitan State University of Denver. Uh, we are going to be talking about the presence of LGBTQ college centers uh, at higher education campuses and their ties to whiteness and white supremacy. So we're starting pretty heavy, um, but this is a presentation Kaiba and I have given. I will cover the first half in terms of the history of college campus LGBTQ centers. And Kaiba will be talking about white supremacy and how it appears in these places and ways that we can combat that. So we'll at least give some solutions and not just pile on all this horribleness. Uh, So yeah, let's start with that. So before we begin, I wanna do a clarification about some vocabulary. There are things uh, we'll call LGBTQ spaces and these are divided into two categories. There are LGBTQ centers, and there are LGBTQ groups. These are defined by who starts these organizations and how they function and what functions they serve on a college campus. Most LGBTQ groups are student-run and student-led. They are focused on the students. They are more activism-drawn. You find that they're more diverse in their populations versus LGBTQ centers, which are typically institution-founded and run, and they are there to serve the students on the basis of things that the university can handle, like name change processes, uh, adding LGBTQ-friendly policies to campus, all that kind of stuff. But you see that they're very less politically involved than LGBTQ student groups. So we're going to do that clarification now, because Kaiba and I will be talking about LGBTQ centers for the duration of this. Um, That is our focus, so let's start with uh, the very first one. Uh, The very first LGBTQ college center was founded at the University of Michigan in September of 1971. Uh, The time period matters here. This is only two years after Stonewall, so the politics of this time period, there's a lot of civil unrest. You have the feminists, you have uh, civil rights organizations that are are rallying together. You also have, really importantly, the anti-Vietnam War rhetoric that is being thrown around in rallies. Uh, That will have some significance later because the LGBTQ student group at the University of Michigan, which is how the center started, 
was actually inspired by the very first LGBTQ movements in Michigan. Uh, Stonewall had shockwaves throughout the nation. Uh, and the origi origins of the LGBTQ movement in Michigan can actually be traced back to a personal ad. In October of 1969, factory worker Wayne King placed an ad in an anti-establishment newspaper called Fifth Estate. Quote, gay radical, 27, wants to meet same, 18 to 30, mask only, box 631-A, Detroit 48232. A few weeks later, the ad changes to those interested in forming a gay liberation group, please write. And eventually the initial meeting is set up at St. Joseph's Episcopal Church in 1970. The meetings that they hold from the minutes that we have uh, count on an average of 50 people per meeting, which is pretty cool at this time period. Uh, for those involved in this group, the soon-to-be Detroit Gay Liberation Front will be the first above-ground open LGBT group that is around uh, and that will be involved in a lot of social and political events in the future. Uh, but I'd love to hear any comments on the origins. I don't know. I found it very interesting that the very first LGBT group in Michigan, or at least out, was based in what is essentially a yield grinder message. Some things never change, I guess. <laughs> you know? Oh, it's just, it's very interesting. Um, so yeah, eventually they do change, they choose the name, the Detroit G Gay Liberation Front. Uh, this is important because this is in reference to the National Liberation Front, which is the other term for the Viet Congs, which are the folks that America is fighting in Vietnam, which not a lot of people are happy with. They don't want to be fighting in Vietnam. Um, so for the people who are in this organization, they are like, it's showing from the very beginning where their politics align. Like, they're communists, y'all. They're radical communists. They're just a bunch of radical gay commies ready to go. <laughs> um, so statewide activism begins, including raps, dances, newsletters. They start a bail bond fund. They do lobbying and classroom outreach. One of the individuals who will become fairly significant in this is Jim Toy. Uh, he is a Chinese American, uh, born to a Chinese American father and a Scottish Irish American woman, uh, mother, woman, <laughs> in 1930. They move to uh, Grandsville, Ohio after Jim's mother dies um, at birth, uh, when he is born, not at her birth. <laughs> and he remarries to a white woman. And Jim actually recalls being one of three families of color in their 2200 populace. It's actually called a village, not a town. <laughs> that is the definition for that. And he remembers certain things such as being forced to go to school in middle school, wearing a sign around his neck that says, I am not a Jap, because this is still around World War II era. And his grandmother, who is Chinese, had married a Japanese man and moved into an internment camp with him. And so his stepmother, Jim's stepmother, who was white, did not want this to be seen with her child. So he talks about how he suppressed this memory of his until somebody brought it up later to him in life. But this is kind of showing Jim's upbringing of where he's at. And eventually by 1957, he is moved to Detroit and he's working at the Episcopal Church that the Gay Liberation Front will soon host their first meeting. Uh, I wish I had the script in front of me, but one of my favorite quotes from him is, he is working at this church and sees on the calendar there is a gay meeting to be hosted in January. And he says, quote, hey daddy-o, what's this gay meeting thing all about? Because that is an actual term 
that they put in the post saying daddy-o was a term used in the radical years. I think we should bring daddy-o back is what I'm getting at. I agree. That's a great, <laughs> a great word. <laughs> so Jim at this point is kind of questioning his sexuality. He's a little hesitant to attend the first meeting because he doesn't know if going makes him gay or not, but he makes a he talks to one of his friends at a bar in Ann Arbor, and the two of them decide to head there. And, you know, Jim eventually becomes the secretary to the group and goes on to form his own gay liberation front chapter in Ann Arbor, uh, not too far away. And all of these chapters are popping up in these areas, uh, such as uh, the areas of Michigan State University, University of Michigan, Eastern Michigan, Central Michigan University, Grand Valley State, Wayne State, and Western Michigan. These are all college campuses that in the time frame of 1970 and 1971, you begin to see student LGBTQ activism on their campuses. The University of Michigan uh, forms a student group that will later become the LGBTQ office. Um, but before we get there, there is some controversy. The Ann Arbor Gay Liberation Front wants to host a conference. And so Jim goes to the University of Michigan asking, can we host a conference here? And the secretary says, well, write a memo. And he does. A few weeks later, they get a rejection from the president saying that this isn't an educational event and that there would be a requirement for a police presence, which most LGBTQ people did not want for their event. This is where things get kind of fun. Uh, there is a student leader on campus who I won't say his name because uh, he wasn't out at the time that he did this. And I don't exactly know his out status now. And I feel awkward naming him, even though other articles do. Um, but he had the keys to the student activities building, and so he just let them in, and they had a conference anyways. <laughs> and about two years later, the Gay Liberation Movement, fun fact, the student group on campus, we're already seeing early uh, headway into sanitization of language. They changed their name to the Gay Liberation Movement on campus because it was seen as too, less antagonistic as Gay Liberation Front. So it's starting. But GLM was prohibited from hanging up a banner at the Abbott Street entrance to their campus for Gay Pride Week. Uh, word would eventually get back to them that the VP, Jack Breslin, did not want, quote, to advertise a club for men engaged in oral sex on my campus. I say, quote, but apparently what he actually said was significantly worse. Uh, I just don't have any text from that one. <laughs> so... Jim Toy is still in this uh, community. He's working with the Ann Arbor group. His significance comes up in April 15th of 1970 when there is a large anti-Vietnam War rally staged in Detroit Kennedy's Square. He becomes the first person to publicly come out as gay in Michigan. He is one of the speakers and he makes the decision there to just come out fully. Uh, he's a little fearful because there are cameras, there are people there, there are news people. Uh, so once he is out, he is out. Uh, but he becomes a name of significance in the area. Um, so much so that he is the one that will go and petition for a student center at the University of Michigan. Um, and he gets it. He gets his center. He and one other person named Cindy um, become the gay male and lesbian advocates to this office. Uh, at the time when it's founded, it is quite literally like a filing cabinet and like a singular cubicle, if even that. <laughs> That's the beginning of uh, those centers. So Jim Toy and Cindy Gare are the first individuals employed at what is titled as the Human Sexuality Advocates at University of Michigan's 
Human Sexuality Office. That name will be changed to Lesbian Gay Male Programs Office, to Lesbian Gay Bisexual Programs Office, to today it's just called the Spectrum Center. And they, they offer a wide variety of different services such as trainings and stuff for students and all that. Uh, it's interesting because their founding is somewhat similar to a lot of other college centers foundings, including our own. Our office is actually the oldest LGBTQ college center in the state of Colorado. We were founded in the year of 1992. This was the year that Colorado passed Amendment 2, which permitted discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Colorado would be dubbed the hate state for the next four years until the Supreme Court struck down Amendment 2. So obviously students were upset and fearful and they urged their universities to make structural changes to ensure the protection of their LGBTQ students. By 1993, in February, our office had been established with Sue Anderson as the first director. We are among the many centers that will pop up before and after the death of Mar Matthew Shepard. His death is actually a catalyst for many campuses to institute spaces for LGBTQ plus individuals. Little rabbit hole, we could spend all day dis dissecting the events of Shepard's death before and after and how his death seems to have had such a visceral reaction to those in and out of the community. I fully believe it has everything to do with him being a cute little white boy. Shepard didn't really have a lot of involvement in the community, yet became a martyr and an icon. But you have folks like Marsha P. Johnson, to who this, to this day, her murder has gone unsolved. Rabbit hole ended. As of today, we are an office that staffs about eight students from UCD and MSU, and we have our singular director. Our day-to-day -day responsibility ranges from social media coordination, event planning, connecting students with resources on and off campus, and managing programming such as our queer and transgender people of color social group. So what's important to note is the time period that these offices are being founded in. Uh, for the first office, this is two years out of Stonewall. The rebellion, the uprising, many credit this as a catalyst for the modern day movement. A new era has started for some, but not everyone was celebrating. Folks of color, Trans and gender non-conforming folks and women were being shoved to the wayside by white cis gay men who, due to their own privilege, were taking up a vast majority of leadership roles in these emerging LGBTQ activist and social support groups. An example I can give is that for all the good the Gay Liberation Front did in Detroit, in January of 1971, they staged a demonstration in five degree temperatures at the Murphy Hall of Justice. Most of the black gay caucus left they left in anger because the protest emphasized police homophobia while admitting the police racism in this ordeal. To quote one of the individuals, their contention was single issue. Let's only deal with gay questions. Well, that's a code word. What it means is let's only deal with white gay male issues. Blacks and women realized what was being said and walked out, end quote. And this is reflected on college campuses. Leadership roles are primarily held by white cis gay men and only focus on issues relating to that population. Look how long it took the U center of U of M to properly address issuing re issues relating to trans folks and people of color. It's 20 years after their foundation. And so we fast forward and you see this queerness as synonymous for whiteness. LGBTQ centers are institution run. The first directors of these centers are 100% chosen very carefully by higher ups. Leadership is based on likability and palatability of higher-ups, not based necessarily in community involvement and experience. They don't want someone who will truly rock the boat. 
understand how universities view diversity and inclusion. I mean, diversity programs are generally couched in a quote-unquote ideology of profits, which understanding and promoting diversity is justified as a means of reaching diverse consumers, developing consumer loyalty, and enhancing public reputation. Plus, there's an emphasis on this unique contribution that every individual and culture brings to a corporation, which is a common technique used to elide issues of power and privilege, and instead emphasizes employees' service to the institution as opposed to the other way around. There's a really great article by Jane Ward, which talks about whiteness in queer spaces, and she says that transformation of racial diversity from a substantive social justice concept to a signifier of profitability or good business has also highlighted the capacity of corporate culture, a realm still dominated by whites, to co-opt progressive racial discourses and put them to instrumental use. So due to a long established history of LGBTQ spaces, in particular centers having white leadership instilled, these spaces become synonymous with whiteness. Programming focuses more on dominant racial identity and sexual orientation and gender identity. To quote Jane again, organizations do not operate in an institutional or cultural vacuum. Therefore, an analysis of white normativity in organizations must account for the ways that external norms produce rewards for organizations that have white normative cultures, and conversely produce constraints for those organizations that attempt to operate outside of a cultural framework that is familiar to whites. I mean, research has shown that those who access LGBTQ spaces on college campuses, whether center or student groups, are specifically looking for folks just like them to connect with. Bi men want to find other bi men. Lesbians want to connect with other lesbians. Folks of color want to connect with folks of color, etc. And when they cannot do that, they simply choose not to engage with the community anymore. Student activist groups historically have diverse membership on the basis that members understand a united political front is much more effective than separate activist efforts. LGBTQ spaces aren't focused on activism. They're just focused on fostering community for students. Thus, you get these silos of population. And then finally, there's something called patrimonialism, which is the distributing of resources based on personal ties. Many LGBTQ centers fall flat in terms of multicultural involvement due to staying in their own limited circles. So hopefully this is a good recap of like, this is the history of our offices and this is where we've gotten to ourselves. So how do we dig ourselves out of this, Kaiba? <laughs> good thing to know. This has a very simple, quick solution. Oh yeah, overnight solutions. We love those. We love how effective they are <laughs> and how much they work. Um, right. There's no easy solution. I mean, I wish there was, but you know, there's, there's not, you know, one quick solution for everything. Um, even though that sounds very nice. Um, and I mean, this is going to look different on every campus you, you go to. Our campus is very, um, unique in its population. I know this because I was, um, a research assistant for a professor on campus for a semester and I had to do, uh, a literature review and you know basically my professor told me like there's a lot of studies out there that you cannot generalize to the MSU Denver student population because we are not um, the same and so a lot of solutions that are written in journal articles are not going to be applicable in a lot of cases 
but there is one thing that a lot of college campuses have in common, and that is white supremacy. <laughs> so what do I mean by that? I mean, there's a lot of ways you can define it, but uh, the best way I can try and define it by the challenging white supremacy um organization is white supremacy is a historically based institutionally perpetuated system of exploitation and oppression of the continents nations and peoples of color by white peoples and the nations of the european continent for the purpose of maintaining and defending a system of wealth power and privilege end quote um and so that's kind of complex and really hard to dismantle because colonialism is baked into every facet of our society. Um, but, you know, the thing I like about this definition is they, they point out that white supremacy is a system that is self-sustaining. Um, and I think that's really important to understand. And when you understand how a system works, it becomes a lot easier for you to identify how you or other offices or structures uphold certain um, power structures and that gives you a good way of starting to dismantle it and you know it's not going to be like a one-person thing it's not going to be like a group of college students do something to stop white supremacy it's a very long process and it's baked into our culture and so it's going to be a very large person effort and you have to um you know think about it in different ways to take apart but one other thing i want to point out with white supremacy especially when like you work on a college institution um and since i have stopped working at the office i've done a lot of self-reflection and like thinking on my own time about how you know i was very much a part of upholding white supremacy and my role on campus. Um, and, and I wasn't doing it consciously. I wasn't, you know, actively thinking about like, how am I going to uphold white supremacy? How am I going to be racist today? <laughs> that definitely was not what I was thinking. And I mean, none of us really, well, hopefully none of us really think like that, but I mean, eh, you've seen how people think sometimes, but uh, regardless, uh, a really good, um, Thing white supremacy is great at doing is it's connecting us from one another um and that makes a lot of us easier to control when we're singled out and we're um thought of to be as independent and um not as interdependent it makes it very easy for us to um fall under kind of like the trance of white supremacy it makes it very appealing and very easy to follow um and I see this happening a lot on college campuses where a lot of offices are very competitive and not cooperative. Uh, I see this a lot when like offices talk a lot about funding and uh, the way I see a lot of people kind of act is like, well, if a student is not utilizing our office, they're utilizing another office and that's bad for us. And it's to me, it's kind of confusing because it's like, well, isn't the goal kind of supporting students and it doesn't really matter where they go on campus if they're getting the help they need? Um, and unfortunately, the answer to that is like, yeah, it is important because numbers are the best way to kind of show a university that, you know, students are using you and that you are needed. Um, but it becomes very 
hard because, I mean, I, I feel like Ambria and Corbett could really talk about this with more in terms of like event planning. But like how many times has it happened when we plan an event and literally another office that does a lot of the same work as us also plan an event on the same day and time or, <laughs> um, you know, I see like a lot of other offices who are not actively involved in LGBTQ issues. They try and host events that talk about LGBTQ issues. And I'm not saying like our office has to be the only one that can do that, but Ooh, you know, they could have really used some consultation from our office. (laughs) I mean, no, we've gone to events that are LGBTQ focused and I have sat there thinking I did not get an email at all that there was an LGBTQ event happening. Uh, Why didn't you email us? Yeah, and I see that a lot on campus and it's just kind of baffling to me and like I understand why they do it. It's because the university structure makes every office compete for resources and resources are very limited and you know money is one of the biggest resources available that has a lot of power um but at some point i have to kind of question a lot of the motives for doing that um they don't (laughs) i kind of get the feeling that institutions don't really care about supporting students they care about their money and i mean (laughs) uh i feel comfortable saying that because i'm no longer tied to it now but uh you know um it's kind of true and i hate that but you know that's kind of the game that you have to play and that's difficult do you think that's further complicated by the fact that we are trying to be a tri-institutional office oh yes i mean uh there is no true tri-institutional office in my opinion i think it's our office and then the phoenix center Phoenix Center does a lot of, oh, and the Health Center. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of them are, like, independently funded. Um, So, like, employees, you know, they can work for a tri-institutional office, but they'll be paid through mostly MSU Denver or CU Denver. And I think for logistical purposes, I guess that makes sense. Like, it has to fall under, you know, someone at the end of the day to get paid. Um but I think it becomes very isolating for a lot of students. I think, you know, with the exception of like the library, I think um, a lot of students are very much put off by certain uh, offices that are kind of like housed under one department. For instance, like a lot of people think of the LGBTQ center as an MSU only um, center when that's, not super far off. I mean, we're technically a tri-institutional office, but we're run through MSU Denver, but most of us only go to MSU Denver meetings or events, and it can become very confusing for students on the campus who are very new. Um, and MSU has, like, one of the bigger student populations on campus, sure, but, yeah, it it just becomes really confusing and it's not really think I don't really think it's very approachable for CCD students or CU Denver students. Mm-hmm. I also don't think it would really make sense though, if CCD and CU Denver had their own LGBTQ office. I mean, I think that'd be really interesting to see how the other institutions would run it. Um, it actually might make things better because 
uh, you can compare each other a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not enough to do each other. There isn't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, just some tea here. I mean, like, <laughs> a really good way to get MSU or CU Denver or CCD to really care about supporting LGBTQ students on campus is to do an actual headcount of how many LGBTQ students there are and how much money they actually fund to the office. And I mean, our office isn't pulling like huge numbers in terms of like, you know, counting or, you know, uh, you know, we don't pull in every single LGBTQ student on campus um, because not every person utilizes our office. And I think I've met just as many LGBTQ people in my classes and in the hallways as I've met working in that office. So I guess back, <laughs> getting back on track to white supremacy, um, there's also a lot of things that come with white supremacy. Um, you know, the gender binary, heterosexism, racism, capitalism, uh, Christianity, stuff like that. Um, and all of those have their own kind of, I don't know, I guess like specific problems that come to it. But a lot of those also have the same root of white supremacy. And I'm not saying if you just, you know, tackle white supremacy, you can't focus on other things. You can obviously do that. Um, But I think like when you tackle white supremacy in itself, um, you're doing a lot of all, a lot of other work that's good. Um, you're going to be taking down the gender binary heterosexism and like racism as well. Um, but just something, I guess, to keep in mind, like I, I feel like sometimes on campus, like uh, if you want to focus on, for instance, like transgender issues, you can't also focus on like gay or bi issues or like racism. And it's like, no, <laughs> you can you can do that. Like, you don't have to just focus on one thing, but I feel like that's very much kind of the mood I see. Well, we had that experience at Creating Change of oh, God. the undocu-queers uh, incident of, I mean, you were there for it if you want to go more into detail on okay. that one, but that's one of my favorite, uh, people don't understand what intersectionality is. Yeah. Um, so when we went to Creating Change, I think it was 2018, I might be wrong though, yeah, we were in D.C., um, and if you were there, I mean, you might have had a different experience, but like, this was mine. I was in a small group with two other people and, um, our goal that day, I guess, like for all the people at the like day long Institute, which was like the day before the actual conference, um, we went to speak to our representatives and we didn't actually speak to them. We spoke to like their like secretary aides or something. And that was really interesting. I mean, it was kind of cool um, actually speaking to the representatives, but the last person on our um, like stop was a Republican uh, office, and I can't remember exactly what we were pushing, like the names of the bills, but one of them also, like one of the issues that we could decide to stay on was like uh, the issue with like undocumented people and also kind of like that intersectionality with being LGBTQ and undocumented. And that's what my (laughs) group mate uh, picked. And this man was like kind of floored at the idea of that a person could be undocumented (laughs) and also an LGBTQ person. Like he had never thought of that or like considered that as like a person like who was existing in, (laughs) in the world. And 
you know, I think, you know, that's very interesting because this person works, like, in D.C. and, like, does a lot of important things, so. But, you know, um, yeah, I just want to point that out. Like, you don't have to just focus on one issue. I mean, if you <laughs> if you have intersectional identities, it's, you know that, but <laughs> a lot of people who aren't involved in that work don't know that. Um, but I guess, like, I want to focus more on what an individual can do and what you can do in your own role. And I think a really big part of that is identifying your own sphere of influence and your social network. Who do you know? Um, what can you actually impact the most? Is it your workspace? Is it, like, your classroom? Is it your friends or colleagues? All of us have our own kind of, like, sphere of influence that we can actually influence and I think it can feel a lot more empowering and a lot more sustainable for you to focus on that at least at first and you know as you continue to do this work that sphere is going to grow and hopefully become more impactful but I think like a lot of us especially in more progressive and liberal spaces we get very um, caught up in thinking about systems and I think that's very important and can't lose sight of that but it also feels very disempowering sometimes it's like okay you and your friends are up against white supremacy do something and it's like okay oh i don't know um to me it felt very disempowering at first um until i kind of started understanding like okay well you know i can't talk to donald trump um about not hating trans people but you know i can talk to some professors who have said some very interesting transphobic things and maybe that's a good starting point and it kind of is um i think the more you can impact your surrounding community the more kind of fulfilling and more uh empowering it feels to know that at least like within your community you can actually change things um but you know once you've kind of identified your own sphere of influence and you know hopefully as time goes on it's going to grow and expand um you need to identify where you have the most impact and you also kind of need to look at the population and the needs of that population you know and what i mean by this and i'm going to kind of focus on like more campus related institutions because that's where I have the most experience but I think you can apply this to a lot of other areas um you know one thing I think that would be interesting to look at is okay a lot of universities are very much caught up on like the quantity of students who use them but what is the quality of that is every student who's walking into your office actually getting help are they getting their meads net through your office is it worth their time to be there um i mean i've run and helped a lot of events on campus and i can't really say to what impact that had on that student even if like they came for like five minutes for free pizza and then left that's a number but that number counts just as much as a student who like was really like changed from being in that event um and i think I wish university offices looked more at the quality of those relationships um, because I think that is a lot more important in the long run in time instead of like quantity. Um, you know, just doing a head count of like how many cutie pox students are there on your campus? 
um you know and i think there's a lot of logistical and like valid security reasons to not doing that um however i think it the pros of knowing how many students who are facing the barriers on your campus is really important to know um and there's a lot of ways you can secure that information um <laughs> just as are you willing to actually do it um you know you can gather focus groups of students you know if you know one cutie pock person i'm pretty sure that they know at least one or two other people on campus who identify the same as them who would be willing to at least sit down and speak um and you know actually compensate them for their time don't just be like okay here's a starbucks gift card i mean that's fine i guess but you know actual money would also be helpful um because a lot of time their experiences are very painful and that takes a lot of um, emotional labor that's never accounted for most of the time um you know ask them ask alumni and other groups of students about their experiences uh i think hearing from people on campus themselves is like a really great way to kind of gather information um and if you work in an office as like an admin person um <laughs> a great way i think you can impact your own workspace is checking out white supremacy in the workplace i don't want to place too much significance on um this because I don't know it it can feel very difficult to unload and unpack like i'm still very much unpacking my own ways i've upheld white supremacy in the workplace but i definitely think it's worth at least a google search for you to understand um and i mean we can spend a lot of time on it but i don't really want to because the article was written by tima okun and kenneth jones and daniel buford um, and it has practical solutions to check out. It's free online. Um, there's 15 characteristics. I'm not going to go down all of them, but, you know, I think it's a great way to start, especially if you work in an office that doesn't necessarily face students, but um, you still uphold white supremacy, whether or not you want to kind of like admit it or look at yourself in the mirror. Um, it's there. And I mean, you can do something about it. You don't have to just kind of be like, oh, well, this sucks and just go with it um <clears throat> but next i think you know after identifying all those is starting to set goals for dismantling um and it's important to keep in mind oppressive structures are not going to disappear overnight i mean like for instance at you know you denver you have the ability to like change your name and also have your pronouns listed that doesn't mean professors are going to use your pronouns because they don't know what it means so i mean there's a lot of <laughs> having that change was great but um that's just kind of like one piece of the pie there's a lot of other things there do professors know what pronouns are do they understand what it means when you misgender somebody in class they probably don't so you need to also kind of cover that area um and you know i think the the key point to keep in mind is progress not perfection um you have to allow for wins to be celebrated and move forward and build more moment more momentum um for future structural change you can celebrate the little wins but don't lose sight of like the big big goal <laughs> okay uh okay so 
when when I talk about dismantling, this is going to look very different for people. And there's a lot of roles to fill. Um, find something you want to work on and use your talents for this movement. Um, there is space for you and the skills you possess. Um, some simple ideas are, you know, challenging upper administration if you have access to them. Push for more student involvement in decisions that actually impact students. Um, you know, you can arrange protests or maybe even a strike. Um, you can redesign your, your office work culture. Um, continue to include students in collaboration with the work you're doing always 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 uh connect across campus to share information your resources your data you know who says the lgbtq office can't work with like the athletics department or like i don't know is there a math club probably why can't we work together or you know branch out to other offices you know who you haven't ever spoken to before i think you need to build that network of connectivity because a lot of times um upper administration will discourage that and that can be really bad and that's kind of reinforcing white supremacy of the idea of you are on your own and you cannot rely on others which is a lie but you know one thing to keep in mind is that if you're doing work about like diversity and inclusion you don't have to partner with the other diversity and inclusion offices i mean you can to, if it makes sense to do that and i encourage you to do that but you know lgbtq students and cutiepox students are everywhere on campus they're not just in these diversity offices they want to have a career they want to you know pursue their interests and they're everywhere on campus and i and i firmly believe that every office and every student organization should be focused on improving equity across the board because they shouldn't have to wait until a trans person comes into their office to start caring about trans issues. That's just not how the real world works. Um, but, you know, you gotta find your niche and you gotta use your skills for what you find meaningful. Um, another way you can think about dismantling though is thinking about sharing the power. Uh, in white supremacy, the goal is keeping all the power in the hands of the few, and that can be very appealing and very attractive, because a lot of times we think that we know the best ways to fix all the problems on campus when, you know, sometimes we're right, but sometimes we're really not, and I think you need, really need to, you know, let student voices have a real impact on your decision making don't just you know send out a survey and be like okay thanks for your feedback um you'll be entered for a raffle for a five dollar amazon gift card like that's cool i mean that's a place to start but i mean that's i w would be pressed to see how how much impact that actually has on like your vision and your mission statement and the actual programs you provide for students um and you know don't just listen to the students who make their ideas sound very palatable, um, especially students whose identities are very palatable to you in upper administration. Include students who disagree with you. I think their voice is just as important um, in taking their concerns seriously and using their suggestions or at least really looking into them. But I also you know, doing this work for a while, um, 
you know, doing some dismantling and also just being a person on campus, um, I've recognized that not everybody is really ready to do that. And I think it's important to include them in the movement, but in a different area. Um, not everybody is ready to dismantle barriers and challenge white supremacy, and that's okay. Uh, but you can't also just push people away because they aren't ready. Um, I think it's important to have something called like a holding space where everyone in, everybody there is encouraged and expected to be better, but just not in this moment. Um, and I think a lot of times, especially now with social media, saying one thing out of ignorance will kind of like ruin you and flush your career and reputation down the toilet. Um, and I think, you know, there's a time and place for that. Sure. But I also feel like if you never give people a moment to kind of consider their own actions, to not feel so judged and disconnected that they might be able to join the movement, um, (laughs) in a way. Um, and I don't know how to like best do this. Um, I'm not an expert on it, but I, I do see it very often. And oftentimes you need, just need to give these people some time and actually talk to them because they're all, they're people too. They just don't know. And, um, you know, there's a lot of opinions about that, but at the end, I want this movement to be something everybody can benefit from, um, including people who don't even know that they can benefit from it. And it's not, then if you do consider doing something like a holding space, you know, talk to other offices on campus, like, you know, the psychology department or sociology, or, you know, if you have a counseling center, maybe ask them about like, hey, how do you think about holding like a therapeutic space for people who want to actually get better at social justice? I mean, I think that's a great place to start. And I think you would attract a lot of people um, because... (laughs) I'm pretty sure if you've worked in an campus office, you've met at least one person who really does not know anything about social justice and they're involved and they want to be in, or they want to be really involved, but they just don't know where they fit in yet. And I think that place would be really good. Um, cool. And lastly, I want to talk about uplifting another key point is it's progress not perfection there are very complex and diverse needs for cutie pox students there is never just one easy solution and cutie pox people they're are not monolithic and neither are their needs it's going to vary like if you just there's a lot of variety in terms of like you know what religion they come from or what class background do they have what are their career goals you know i think those are all very relevant things that cannot just be covered in one like cookie cutter solution um but this is important because this plays into research and i love research i love doing research um even though it's very boring (laughs) sometimes uh but when you do research you know um it's important because you have to actually identify your prime targets for intervention and support. Um, you know, I fear that if like you just ask alumni, like cutie pock people, what their experience was like on campus, you're going to be missing out on like a lot of cutie pock students who stopped out or dropped out. 
what what impacted their decision to do that uh that's really important um so i mean there's just a lot of things like we haven't really considered um and so i think doing research kind of outside higher ed like under the eye of like higher ed can be really important and what i mean by that is like partner with the psychology sociology social work and other humanities offices who have access to student population and also when i worked as a research assistant i actually had more data on how many <laughs> non-heterosexual non-cisgender people were actually on campus and it's around 10 percent um so that's a lot of students that you could utilize on a campus that has like what, like 50,000 students or something like that. Um, and if you hate research, that's fine. These students need research. I can tell you that like me getting into the graduate program, having research experience was really, really helpful and really beneficial. And so, I mean, everybody wins in this situation. So definitely reach out and talk to them. Um, but, you know, some basic kind of uplifting recommendations I can give is compensate QDPOC students fairly. Um, you know, offices sure love to have QDPOC workers until they have to pay them what they deserve. Um, and don't overwork or burden QDPOC employees with expectations of having them teach you or share their trauma for, you know, a white audience to kind of like look up to uh their people not just like information sources and you know also let it be known that QDPOC folks have other interests they want to pursue they they're everywhere on campus they're not just in these diversity offices and so you need to let them show up authentically and in as many spaces as possible they're everywhere um you just need to you know open your eyes a little bit but I guess, like, lastly, on another, like, uplifting recommendation on, like, higher education offices is, you know, when you make the campus more equitable and accessible for QDPOC students, it will help in uplifting them. So, you know, having accessible and transparent forms for all students, you know, having inclusive dorms, restrooms, changing rooms, and locker rooms that are accessible, um, having meaningful representation and leadership and not just tokenization. You know, uh, MSU Denver has a very large diversity of professors, but most of them are adjunct, not full-time. And what message does that really send? Um, you know, dismantling white supremacy across the whole campus, not just in diversity offices. You know, wellness and health centers that have services for QDPOC folks, HRT, surgery therapy, competent staff, etc., uh, preparing QDPOC people for after college. Like, you know, it's important that they have a good college experience, but the real world sometimes is not like higher ed. And how are you going to actually help them succeed in the world after that? Um, you know, that's a really important topic. But also, you know, having student life and programming like for QDPOC people if they want, you know, you know, I don't really play sports, but I'm sure a lot of other QDPOC people love to play sports. Uh, so let them be jocks and not have to worry about, you know, them fitting in or like experiencing homophobia or transphobia in a space where they shouldn't. Um, but those are 
it's kind of some of the recommendations that I would have, um, given my experience and knowledge. And I mean, I'm going to be going back to higher ed and, you know, I'm never, I, I don't know if I'm going to be working on campus again, but, um, you know, I'm going to make my presence known. So feel free to reach out to me. And if, I guess you want to be able to see me cause this is a podcast, but if you know what I look like, um, feel free to talk to me. I'm very much open to talking to anybody. Can they find you on social media if you're open to that? So they can see your wonderful face? Uh, technically, yes. Um, I am a hermit online. And, you know, I have social media accounts, but I don't really use them. My email is a great place to hit me up. <laughs> I'd love to grab coffee in person or virtual. Um, you know, in the description of this, you can put my contact info. That's where I would feel comfortable with. I mean, I'm on Facebook, and you can type in Kaiba Linthicum, um, but, you know, I'm not really on it, so I might respond. I might not. <laughs> but, yeah, thank you for listening to us. Yeah, thank you for being here, Koiba. I love presenting with you, and this is, like, in terms of first episode material, I'm like, why don't we just start from the beginning? Why are we even on this campus? Why is anybody on this campus? <laughs> well, first of all, none of us are on campus. You know what I mean, okay? <laughs> Where is that meme of, like, are you on campus? Not physically. Not physically. <laughs> That's very true. I mean, I guess, yeah. Uh, I mean, I'd love to have more conversations with people about this. Um, just because I think it's important to hear from a lot of different sides. Like, I've heard a lot of very interesting things that have happened in other departments. Uh, regarding, like, specifically transphobia, but also, like, homophobia is very rampant in other areas of campus and I think we've done ourselves a disservice sort of by siloing ourselves in these diversity offices and never really interacting with other like important offices that you know students are everywhere and you know they use these offices and chances are some of them are queer so they're probably facing something do you have any questions Corbin about what we've talked about no, actually. <laughs> then most of that makes sense. For once in my life, yeah. <laughs> I hope so. I hope whoever's listening this makes sense to them. <sighs> Thanks for listening to the first episode of the podcast that is sponsored by the LGBTQ Student Resource Center of Auraria. We'll come up with a name for this eventually. But till next time, see ya.